Welcome to the podcast, Let the Prophet Speak. Today we continue our study of the second book of Samuel, that is Shmuel Bet. We are up to chapter 15, that is Perak Tetvav. And um, we completed the last chapter where one might have thought that there was some kind of, kind of rapprochement between David and Avshalom. Yoav tried to bring the two of them together. But we pointed out that it was an extremely uh, cold reception, no emotion, no real uh, bonding, no real reconciliation between the two. We just simply, the king kissed Avshalom and that was it. And in case you were skeptical about, about this, uh, about that supposed um, reconciliation, the proof will be in the pudding that the reconciliation was absolutely meaningless and completely on the surface, on the surface, based on what's about to happen. So here we read verse one in chapter fifteen. It was after this, in other words, after what we just read about that Avshalom and David supposedly made peace. Avshalom began to embark on the project which David was afraid the whole time he was going to do, embark on, which was the project of taking over the kingdom. Um, so and and deposing his father, Vayaslo Avshalom Merkavav Susim Avshalom made for himself a rider, a, a chariot, and horses. Vachamishim Ishratzim Lefanav and had fifty men running before him. So he started treating himself like royalty, as if he was a king. This was a symbol. This was the kind of thing that was a symbol of being a king. Vishkim Avshalom, Avshalom would wake up early in the morning. Presumably, he woke up early in the morning because. People would start lining up to see the king, to King David. As we saw, the woman from Tekoa in earlier in the last chapter was able to get an audience with the king. This is the way it worked in those days. You waited online in the king's court until he called you in. You presented your issues, whatever they were, and he issued whatever decision it was and took whatever action uh, he needed to take. Um, so, but Avshalom got up early, and he stood outside the gate, the gate where people would walk in towards the king's palace. Every person who had some sort of a uh, of an argument, some sort of a, a lawsuit, an issue to bring to the king, for judgment. And Avshalom would call the person over, and he would say, Where do you come from? What city? And he would answer, from one of the tribes of Israel. Uh, uh, that's where your servant comes from. In other words, this is just an example of the type of conversation that he would have with the people that were coming to see the king. And Avshalom would tell him, It sounds like you have a really good case and they're proper. Avshalom knew right away how to talk to a person to butter them up. Obviously, whether a person's case was good or not was something that wasn't yet determined because it hadn't yet been brought <coughs> before the judge. But Avshalom said, oh, this sounds like you have a really good and important case and, and you're saying good, so to speak. But no one's going to listen to you, right? Or no one is yet listening to you from the king. Apparently, there was some hesitancy on the part of David. The mood that he was in, the uh, how David had started to seclude himself and his depression, and uh, you know, and the, which we have seen his his willing his his desire to simply well his 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 lack of action is better to say, and his silence in the face of 
uh, action that needed to be taken is becoming a pattern of David's behavior as a result of what had happened with Bathsheba. We saw he was silent in the face of Amnon's despicable act. He was silent in the face of Avshalom's despicable act. He was silenced when Avshalom was absent. He needed to be spurred on by a woman from Tekoa to, in order to do what was best for the nation, and he did it half-heartedly. So apparently he was also doing the same in his public duties as king. He was not giving people audiences, at least not as much as he should, not paying attention. And I would like to point out in his, in his discussion with the woman from Tekoa, his first uh, action was to hear her petition and then say, I'll get back to you, right? And, which basically means this was his behavior. His behavior was such that he, just, he wasn't making decisions. And Avshalom was saying, no one's listening to you at the king. I'm here. I got up early. I'm standing here. And Avshalom said, if only they made me the judge. <coughs> Remember the shofet, this is the role of the king. And then to me, everyone can come to me. Anyone that has any kind of argument or, dis- or, 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 or judge, judge, you know, Judgment issue, and I can I can uh, make sure to hit um, active. Uh, uh, I can make him just. In other words, I can bring him justice. And if anyone came to bow to him, in other words, um, uh, to bow to him and show him deference, and, and hint to him that he would be willing, or maybe already is ready to make him the man in charge. He would put out his hand and hold him and bring him close and give him a kiss and a hug, you know, bring him close. Avshalom was the uh, absolute uh, top-notch politician here. He knew exactly what David's vulnerabilities were, and he knew exactly how to exploit it. He knew exactly how to tell people, yeah, you're right, you're right, your, your case is good, give them a hug and make them feel important and tell them, I'll fight for you, you just come to me. Avshalom did this to all of the people of Israel that would come to the king for judgment. This, the, the, the king's giving judgment and giving audiences to the people was a crucial way that the king related to the people and the king maintained his, his, his leadership over the people. People respected him because of this role that he played and Avshalom is taking this... Um, uh, is 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 bringing his opposition to the core of the David's strength and taking that away, and therefore it says, "Vayiganev." The end of verse six, Avshalom, Avshalom stole at Levan Shei Yisrael. He stole the stole the hearts of the people, meaning stole them from who? Stole them from David and brought them to himself. Now the people wanted to support Avshalom. So Vayhimi Ketsar Boimshano. It was at the end of forty years. Now clearly, this doesn't mean. 40 years that Avshalom was doing this. This was the end of, of a 40-year period of time. Exactly what this period of time is, there's many different explanations as to what it might be. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, 40 years from when. Um, um, so it could be uh, one of the most understandable 40 years of David's uh, kingdom. And if you... If you uh, work out the times, it's not exactly 40 years. It's roughly 38 or 39, but it's close enough to 40 that it makes sense that at the end of 40 years, so 40 years is, is a significant amount of time um, where David's kingdom has been established for this long. And Avshalom said to the king, 
Uh, he, he, he presented himself to the king asking permission in a very innocent-sounding way. Let me go and fulfill my neder, fulfill my promise that I promised God in Hebron. Now, Hebron is, there's several things um, Avshalom is doing here that's very interesting and plays upon uh, memories that were set in the Jewish heart and soul for generations until now. First, Hebron is, of course, associated with the forefathers Jacob. And we all recall when Jacob ran away from his father, Isaac, right? He made a promise to God that if you take care of me and bring me back here, right, I will fulfill my promise and bring you a sacrifice. That was one important thing. And so let's read chapter 8. And Avshalom is echoing Jacob when he says this to his own father. Because your servant, in other words, I made a promise. When I was stuck out in Geshur, in Aram, when I was in exile. That if God brings me back to Jerusalem, and I will serve God. So I have to fulfill that promise. And that is... Um, is, is him echoing the forefather Jacob. <coughs> Another thing that's, that, that's important is why Hebron? <coughs> Hebron has a tactical importance. Hebron is in the center of the strength and the power of the tribe of Judah, which is the, which is the tribe from which David derives most of his strength. It's his own home tribe. <coughs> and um, going to Hebron would be a, a logical place for Avshalom to go to drum up support to take over for David. The, uh, 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 the, uh, and and the, a third thing is, Avshalom is echoing by this story uh, something in the past that David himself did. Remember when David came to King Saul and said, I'm going to go with my family to bring sacrifices to God. So these are things that, that have happened before. Avshalom is using a time-worn tactic here uh, to go to another place and become king, and make himself, crown himself king in that other place a place where he can drum up support that's crucial to undermining David's uh, base of support, <coughs> but couching it in such a way that makes him sound all righteous and holy and special. So how could David refuse such a request? And none, therefore he says in verse 9, The king said to him, Go in peace. So he got up <coughs> and he went to Hebron. So he went with permission from the king and uh, under the ruse of going to worship, going to pray to God, to thank God for saving him and bringing him back to Jerusalem, while his true purposes were much more nefarious than that which we're about to read. So uh, we're continuing to read uh, with verse 10 as we see the... I just want to remind everyone, <coughs> we're continuing to see the, the unraveling of David's kingdom to the point where it's just about going to completely collapse. And, and, and all of this brought about by the sin with Bathsheba and its aftermath and the aftermath of the aftermath as it continues to spiral downward and downward and downward. Avshalom Miraglim. Avshalom sent messengers, or, or, or the word Miraglim is often used uh, uh, as, as spies, 
you know, b'chol shivtei Yisrael. In other words, it gives you the sense by choosing that language instead of saying malachim or or some other word. It uses miraglim to give us the idea that Avshalom is doing this in a bit of a surreptitious way <coughs> to all the tribes saying them. Kishamachemet kol hashofar. When you hear the shofar sounding, then you should say Molach Avshalom b'chavron. Avshalom became king in Hebron. Now remember, Hebron also, I, I forgot to mention before, is the place where David's kingdom started. For the first several years, Hebron was the capital. So again, it would make sense for Avshalom to use that as his base to start his being a kingdom. So in other words, when the shofar has sounded, then we're in. And he had his men set among all the tribes, ready to declare Avshalom the king. Vet Avshalom halchu masayim he took with him 200 men going innocently. They did not know. The point being, demonstrating to us the point that in Jerusalem, in Yerushalayim, the hearts of the people were still with David, which we're going to see as this chapter continues. David maintained his support within Jerusalem, but even when one gets to Hebron, which is very close to Jerusalem, right, one already finds apparently the, the the support of David waning and the support of the um, of Avshalom uh, uh, beginning to grow. So when Avshalom took 200 people with him from Yerushalayim, the verse is pointing out to us that they came innocently thinking that Avshalom was simply going to Hebron to fill his neder, to fill his promise to God, to worship God in Hebron, as he said. So they came not knowing that they were going to be part of of a scheme to overthrow David. Avshalom then sent for a key figure here, Achitofel from Gilon, right, who is David's trusted advisor. <coughs> Achitofel was known as a wise advisor to David, someone who David uh, relied upon for good advice. He took him from his city, from Gilo. Um, Gilo, which is very close to Jerusalem, so Achitofel was uh, was um, was uh, uh, you know uh, remained kind of on the edge. We also know that it's most likely that Achitofel was the grandfather of Bathsheba. Uh, um, I, I, I'm forgetting. I think his son's name was Achinoam, I think, and his daughter was Bathsheba. So Achitofel had a particular. Um, would have, in theory, at least most likely, had some serious misgivings about David and what he had done to his granddaughter and to his um, grandson-in-law, uh, to to um, Uriah Achiti. So, so, um, so, so, by Avshalom realized that Achitofel would therefore be a potential, really important potential ally for him, and that he can exploit Achitofel's uh, likely. Uh, anger at David and in order to bring Achitofel to his side. So this is, a, again, a very wise political move on the, on the part of Avshalom, and this is going to play out in interesting ways, as we'll see as we read through the story of Avshalom's rebellion. So he took him, b'zavcho et azvachim, so to be there while he brings these, these uh, sacrifices in Hebron, as he had planned to do. And the conspiracy, the Kesher here is, the, is literally the conspiracy 
that the people had, which at this time is still in secret, and some people are in the know and some people are not. It's unclear if when he called Achitofel, if Achitofel even knew that this was a conspiracy. But, uh, but it was getting stronger and stronger. And the nation that surrounded Avshalom was growing stronger and larger. More and more people were, were supporting Avshalom and his rebellion. And the Hamagid uh, uh, means the person who said. In other words, we're not bothering mentioning who this was because it doesn't matter. It was a person who came to David and said, <coughs> The people of Israel. Now, Ish Israel in, in Tanakh is often used uh, to connote the leaders, the people with the opinions, the movers and shakers, or in modern parlance, the influencers. They're all running after Avshalom. Avshalom's political campaigns and and is uh, starting to bear fruit and people are supporting him. What does David do? Now this is interesting. David is going to do something that can be interpreted and on the surface makes one feel like that it was kind of cowardly. Right? Uh, um, and I'm going to read this to you and then you can think for yourself and I'll, I'll of course share what, what, what the feelings that come out of this verse are. But we're supposed to get, I think, the feeling that this is a little bit of a cowardly move, but in a moment I'm going to explain it to you in a way that will, will understand David's thinking and why this, this was a, a, a very interesting um, move. He tells everyone that Asher Ito, his servants that are with him, be Yerushalayim. Remember, in Yerushalayim, the sentiment of the people was still supporting David. Kumu v'nevracha, let's get up and run. Because we will not be able to be saved from Avshalom. In other words, when he comes back to Jerusalem with all of his uh, men and now getting the support of all the people, he's going to attack us, he's going to kill us. Anyone that supports me and, and anyone that's with me, he's going to kill. we got to get out of here. We won't be saved. Right now, we are not powerful enough to fight Avshalom. <coughs> we need to hurry and leave. <coughs> because if he hurries, he might catch up to us. And he will, um, he will cause terrible things to happen and he will strike down this entire city in, by the sword. Now this is remarkable because on the one hand, you'd say, we tend like to think of a hero as the one who stands up. David should have stood up for what was right and told the people to fight. Fight back against Absalom to the last man. And we like this. This is what sounds good in the movies, and it's what goes over well in the in the heroic uh, epic sagas of the the one who stood up for what's right and everything. But D- David was much smart. David was much smarter than that. David realized exactly as he stated that the people of the nation, the majority of the people, are against us. If I stay here, the entire city will be slaughtered. There would be a battle. Remember, David was not. A, a coward when it came to a fight right? but he understood that a fight that one is sure to lose doesn't make sense to fight better to back away so that at least the city can be saved the people in the city can be saved and we can always come back and fight later if we have to but right now is not the time let's get out of here so we can avoid um, avoid a conflict that will simply result in death and destruction what David would have done had the story of Bacheva not happened in this kind of situation is, is something interesting to think about. But this is what he did do in the situation that he was in. And one can argue whether it was good, bad, in between. 
But this is what happened. The servants of the king said to the king, Whatever you, uh, our master, the king, says, here we are, we are your servants. We are ready to do as you state. You tell us to retreat, we will retreat. So, this is verse 16 now. The king and his entire household went biraglov, they went by foot. And he left ten of his concubines to keep guard on the house. Now, what is the purpose? Why did he leave the concubines behind? Um, so that 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 would be, um, it's a, it, you know, presumably the 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 reason. I mean, obviously this is all conjecture, but but it would if one gets the sense that the reason for leaving the the concubines behind is so that the um, the king still has a presence, right? He's leaving, but he's not totally leaving. There's still a presence in Jerusalem of David. The, he wouldn't imagine that his son would would violate these concubines by leaving them there. They are his wives. He's leaving the house in the hands of David, but but in, in such a way that, that um, David is hoping to avoid conflict, but also leaving, uh, you know, uh, uh, a, a, a mark of his of his uh, royal family on the palace. <coughs> and the king and all of the people that were following him went out by Hamdu Beit Hamerchak, and they stopped at the final house at the end of the city. So they kept on going until they were almost at the end of the city and about to exit the city. And at this point, and what why what happens at this base? We're going to read in the next podcast before David actually leaves the city completely there's some negotiations and some issues that are going to happen in the next podcast but let's just finish verse 18 all of his servants were passing with him and the kreti and the pleti which is assumed to mean um, uh, uh, like his shock troops his um, his um, his uh, his uh, like royal guard, you know, the Kreti and the Pleti would be the 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 high level uh, guard of the king's guard. V'chol hagitim and all of the Gitites. So they, the Gitites are presumably Philistines. The Philistines had been had been um, subdued as a nation. And remember, David had a special relationship with the people, and God, remember, he sought refuge there. And apparently, many of the people of God swore loyalty to David. And even though they weren't part of the people of Israel, they were loyal servants of David. There were 600 people total <coughs> that came from God to, to, go by David, to go with David and to be with him. So there was a significant contingent of people from God that were not uh, uh, Judahites but they, or Israelites, but they were... Uh, allies of David, they were passing before and with the king, marching with the king out of Jerusalem. So this concludes the first half of chapter 15. Looking forward to studying the second half of chapter 15 together with you and of course the entirety of this beautiful book of Shmuel as we read the continued unraveling of David's monarchy. Thank you so much for studying together. Have a wonderful day.